Beloved, let's turn then in our Bible to the fifth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Today I'm going to be reading from verse 7 all the way down to the end of the chapter, just 7 to 14. Okay, follow along with me in your own Bibles. In the days of his flesh, of Jesus' flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he heard, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is but a babe. But solid food is for the mature, for those who by their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Amen. Amen. Now, if you remember from last week, we were looking at the qualifications of a high priest and the writer, the, the speaker, the, the author here was illustrating that Jesus fulfilled the qualifications of being a high priest. He underlined five, it depends who you ask. Some people say there were four, some people say there were five. The five requirements of a high priest, general requirements, and how Jesus fulfilled those requirements. That he is legitimate in his claim that he represents us before God. For the Jews, this was a very big thing. That how was Jesus qualified? He wasn't of the right tribe. He had never been anointed in the temple. How? And the writer here shows that Jesus' priesthood far outweighed, far outshone, was far superior in its nature than the priesthood of the temple. It was eternal in its nature. It was in the order of Melchizedek, an order that never did. Melchizedek, of course, was the king of Salem during the Old Testament in the late to early Bronze Age, late to middle Bronze Age. The story is, of course, that uh, Abraham comes out and, and, um, and is blessed by Melchizedek. Melchizedek was both king and high priest, which makes his priesthood much superior. And the Jews of Jesus' time, they understood that that reference, that he was to be after the order of Melchizedek, they knew that was a messianic promise, a promise about the, the one who was to come, the Christ, the Messiah. 
Today I want to look a little bit different. As I was studying for this this week, and I was going through just the qualifications, I was struck by something, and that's always something that, that just... It's not that it's not from the text, but perhaps it's a lesson from the text, not necessarily an opening of the text. So I got caught by this this week. It actually spoke to my heart and it laid upon my mind. And it wasn't until this morning that I really came to peace. Okay, this is what I'm going to preach. This is what I'm going to put out. All the, uh, the points were very clear throughout the week. But um, So today I want to look at this. Verses 7, 8, and 9 talks about in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him. If there was one attribute, one defining factor that you could say about the life of Jesus Christ that defines what he did, who he was, it would be the fact that he lived an obedient life. He utterly fulfilled all of God's demands. All of the demands and the weights of the law of God were laid upon him. And he perfectly fulfilled them. Was complete in his obedience. And I, we think, well, but think how amazing that is. For human beings, obedience is a foreign concept. You say, go do this. And if, especially if you have children... Stop, do this, come here. Or you have been a child. <laughs> Some of us are still a chill child at heart. Um, you're told to do something and your natural instinct is to say no. As an Irishman, as a Northern Irishman, as a Northern Irish Protestant, I know that very well. Our government, the government of Northern Ireland, has tried to forbid the Northern Irish Protestants from celebrating the Battle of the Boyne 1690 great battle that delivered the Northern Irish people from under the tyranny of the Roman Catholics where William of Orange triumphed over King James II, I believe. And so every year on the 12th of July, the Protestant people, or the, 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 some of the Protestant people, a good portion of the Protestant people of Northern Ireland, they celebrate this with parades. And drums. That's how, oh, you'd love it. It makes the blood stir. And they have flags. And they have flutes. And it's like military bands. And I'm not just saying one or two. I mean, you look down the road and as far as you can see, there's flags and bands and, and men dressed in foolish, looking like clown uniforms, blue with red, and throwing this stick up in the air and celebrating this great... Liberation that the Protestants won for themselves. But the difficulty is that the Protestants celebrate this by marching through Roman Catholic areas. They don't just celebrate, they rub it in. They proclaim their liberation that happened in 1690. And still today, they're rubbing the salt into the wound, the lemon juice into an open sore. And it... Utterly, utterly, utterly gets on the nerves. It's a, great, it's a, a form of great offence. I know it's not quite the same, but think the Ku Klux Klan walking through a black neighbourhood. It's not quite the same. But for the Roman Catholics, it's that level of offence. 
Our oppressors are still oppressing us. But the government of Northern Ireland has tried several times, many times, every time, every year, to say you cannot walk down this street. You can have your parade, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, have your parade, but just not down through that particular neighbourhood. You can walk, you can parade, but not down that street. And the Irish, Northern Irish Protestant people are like, I will walk that street. And because the government has said, no, it becomes a, a, a life and death situation. This is my right. I, to, uh, think about the feelings of these poor Roman Catholic people. That is my right. And out of sheer rebellion, people who really didn't care suddenly become impassioned. It's my right. I will walk that street. Simply because the government has said no. Why? It is... The nature of human beings to rebel, to be disobedient. Don't do that. Don't do that. You turn your back and you something happens. But Jesus Christ, in his life here in the flesh, lived a perfectly obedient life. Amazing. Not just with the appearance of obedience, but full obedience, internal and external. And the Bible tells us here that he had to fight for it. Offered up with prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears. Now, whether this is referring to the Gethsemane moment, where Jesus is crying, where Jesus is um, weeping those Tears of blood is up for debate. I personally think that it's a sign, uh, uh, an indication of his entire life. That he pursued obedience with this heavy intercession. With this heavy supplication. We're told... In the Bible, repeatedly, remember as we walked through the, the, the Gospel of Mark, we saw Christ's prayer life exhibited, shown to us, that he, time and time again, would go off and seek a place to be with God. Early in the morning, up on the mountains, wherever he could get alone, away from people, he would seek out God and he would make intercession. Supplication for himself and for those around him. And he was obedient. His life was marked by that. And we're told here that it was because of his reverence. In my Bible it says reverence. Godly fear or godly submission. It was because he feared God, because he knew the character of God, because he recognized that God was the father of us all, our father, not just his father, our father. He was motivated by godly fear. And that godly fear exhibited itself, demonstrated itself, showed itself in a lifestyle that sought 
out God with tears and loud cries. And I thought, if it was hard, and I don't think, I don't want to say it was hard for Jesus to be obedient. I don't think it was hard for Jesus to be obedient. He had a godly nature. But I think it was hard for him to maintain that pattern of godliness. I, I said this to Joel last week. I noticed it direct. As, so as soon as I step back into the pulpit, my week fills up with other things. Legitimate other things. When I was off, I could sit the whole day and not, I didn't have to do anything. You know, I could read my silly books, um, detective novels or historical novels or science fiction novels. I could uh, watch YouTube, geopolitical nonsense about Russia and Ukraine. Nothing would disturb me. My days were long and empty. But as soon as I made the commitment to step back up into the pulpit, my week filled up. From morning to night, things... Legitimate reasons. Not, not sinful things. But legitimate reasons. Legitimate excuses not to be in the Word. Legitimate reasons why not to spend time in prayer. Legitimate reasons to have my mind worry and can be concerned about other things. Life has a way of getting in and getting in the way and causing us to have legitimate reasons why we don't have time to pray or don't have time to come to church, don't have time to spend time with the people of God or even time to spend with God. And what I think we see here in verse 7 especially is the determined effort of the Lord Jesus Christ to put God first in his life. To put his obedience to God above all other things in his life. Above his relationship with his mom and his dad. Above his relationship with his brothers and sisters. Above his relationship with his disciples. Above his relationship to the state, to the Romans. Jesus, I think we're seeing here, fought hard to maintain that obedience. He didn't just walk around in this like, oh, holy little cloud, you know, like levitating across the ground and everybody where he went, things were like, oh, and everything was easy for him. Oh, it was okay for Jesus. Everything just fell into place. Have you read the life of Christ? Or at least the ministry of Christ? It was not an easy life. And yet he fought hard to maintain that obedience. And again, as I was studying for this this week, that really struck me. It hit my heart. It challenged my mind. It convicted me. Spoke to me very often. We who are reformed, reforming, you know I hate that expression. I do. But when we use that word reformed, it's almost like we've arrived. We've arrived. We've stopped moving. I thoroughly believe in the church always reforming. I, I think it's very dangerous to use the word reformed because it gives this image that we, we're, we have arrived and we, we don't have anything else to do. And that's not true. We may have an established doctrine 
belief system, creed that we hold to. But the work of reformation is ongoing always in our lives. There are always temptations and new levels of sin, new distractions, new episodes of our life pulling us back and pulling us away from our obedient life to God. And therefore we must always be in a state of continual reformation. But how then do we accomplish this? Beloved, if it was hard for the Lord Jesus Christ, if he had to make an effort in his perfection, in his purity, if he had to make the effort to get up, to apply himself, to put God first, no matter what the circumstances. Do you remember that the Bible tells us that in certain parts of Christ's ministry, that his brothers would come to him and, 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 or his mom and his brothers came to him and, and he, Jesus was in a room and there was a massive crowd around the room and they came and the word got to, Lord, your, your relatives are here. You are my brothers. Here is my mother. Is it not those who hear and believe in the word of God? He put Christ first. <laughs> he put the ministry of Christ first. He put God's people first. They superseded even his own blood relatives. Why? Because it was his ambition to be obedient. Christ's life was defined by obedience. Obedience to the Father first and foremost above all other things. And he had to fight for that. Now, again, that should speak to you. It spoke to me, beloved. I realize that as a result of our reform thinkings, there comes this almost a, a sedative-like effect. It lulls us into a sense of security. Well, you know, I, I don't want to use the word hyper. It's a dangerous word. Hyper. An over-enlarged sense of, well, if it's God's will, it will be. It will be, you know. Why do we have to struggle or strain? This is trust in God and everything will work out the way, you know, it's supposed to work out. But do we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if, if the Lord wanted me to do these things, then I wouldn't have so many other responsibilities, natural responsibilities in life. The Lord understands that I have this and this and this and this and this and this. It's never ending. But the truth is that the spirit of Christ that is in us is the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be able to emulate, to copy the life that he demonstrated to us and first and foremost, we see a life that struggled and strained, fought hard to put God first above all other things. Now, I'm not saying we neglect those other things. We can't say, look, I can no longer be a father or a husband because I have to put God first. That was the mistake that men did in the Middle Ages and formed monkism. I can't remember what the expression was. I looked it up. Monkism. 
where men became monks and women became nuns and they went into costures and they rejected their lives and they gave themselves to God and they became gardeners and beekeepers and winemakers and cheesemakers and all to the glory of God. That's not the life that God has called us to. That is not what we're talking about here. We don't neglect one thing in order to focus on another. We make room in our lives. We put God first, foremost. And we seek to be obedient in those core values of our lives. Our prayer life. I'm not just talking about going through a a rosary bead list. Oh dear Father, please this morning bless this person, that person, this person, this person. Going through some sort of religious ceremony. Yes, we are religious. Yes, we must do it regularly. But maintaining that lifestyle. Fighting for that lifestyle. Because, honest to goodness, our enemies are strong. The world, the flesh, the devil, the the people around us. We talk about the world. Again, thinking this week. Talk about the world and often things we think about the media or the state, culture. But the world can be your family environment. It can be ungodly thoughts that are propagated by your family members. They are the vehicle by which the world comes into your life. I'm not very often on Facebook. I'll open it up. I'll look at it and then I close it within two minutes. Bloop. Okay. I'll probably be on Instagram much more looking at model pictures. Not models of women, but models of tanks. Okay. Just so we all understood what I was talking about there. Tanks and aircrafts that someone somewhere has painted. And some jujitsu stuff, of course. And we think often, you know, the world is trying to influence through those things. But really, the world can find its voice in ungodly attitudes and intentions through our loved ones. Our mothers, our fathers, our brothers, our sisters. Did Jesus not say that the enemies of our, our enemies would be even the members of our own household? He warns us. Now, again, we don't fight or war in the flesh. We don't know, you're our enemy, and we try and burn them or things like this. That's nonsense. No. We're to love those who hate us. We're to love those who are against us. We must actively be on our guard, but also we must be active in our obedience and maintaining that obedience. And you will have to fight for it. That struck me this week. That as a reformed guy, I, I think I have become too relaxed. That I no longer strain or fight for. That somehow in some way I have been lulled to sleep. My prayer life is tame in comparison to what it once was. I pray in a very tame fashion. Without a hunger, without a need, without a pressing need to be obedient. It's almost as if I no longer believe in those forces that would drive me away from God. Beloved, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think it's the spirit of our age. When Martin and I had 
lunch, coffee, time together on, on Friday, we talked a little bit about easy believism. About the spirit of easy believism. And it's very easy and tempting for us to think easy believism happens out there. In other places. Where they cheapen the gospel. Where they focus on pragmatic issues. But beloved, easy believism can happen here as well. Where we say the right things. We nod our head and give an, a willing ear to listen to the truth. But when it comes to having to live out those, to fight for them, to persevere in those virtues and to press on in the truth, life gets in the way. Life gets in the way. Our lazy flesh doesn't want to fight. Doesn't want to have to sacrifice. Doesn't want to have to fast. And it's very easy for us to kind of take the easy way out. I think it was yesterday, Sarah's nephews were at our house. Um, trips up to the three of them in the morning time and, and the boys had the Disney Channel on and they were watching old-fashioned cartoons, classic cartoons from around 1930s. It was Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? You know, the three pigs and, and um, Red Riding Hood, Red Leuven, and the Bad Big Bad Wolf. And I was thinking to myself, they just don't make cartoons like this anymore. I mean, like, just, it was just completely different. And I thought to myself, there's, and as I was watching the cartoon, I thought to myself, there's a great lesson there. One of the pigs, the one who's building the house of, of bricks, he lectures the other two pigs and warns them because they're just about play and they're playing the violin and the flute and all they want to do is have a good time. And the pig that's building the house says, listen, there's a time for play and there's a time for work and this is a time for work. And then he warns them, and the little red riding hood's going to go visit her grandmother. And the pig who's building the house with the, the bricks, he warns little red riding hood and the, his two brothers, the lazy pigs, about taking the shortcut through the woods. He says, only disaster will happen if you take the shortcut. Take the safe path. If you leave the safe path, you'll get attacked by the wolf. And, you know, sure as eggs, they leave the path because who's afraid of the big bad wolf? He's a sissy. And as they're heading through the forest, of course, the big bad wolf comes. And, uh, you know, he chases them. It's a Disney thing. So they just chase him around. He bangs into trees and all the rest of stuff. But there was a great lesson there that we, we don't have really. We don't have moral lessons in modern day cartoons, do we? It's usually corruption and perversion that's propagated in modern cartoons and that was that there are no easy ways there's no shortcut to obedience you can't cut corners and expect nothing bad to happen life isn't all about joy and parties and playtime I, I, I thought about these pigs these two lazy pigs playing the flute and, 
And I thought, no, they really are an expression of the world, aren't they? Where they, all they want to do is enjoy life and live their life with no consequences, just wild and radical and free. But when danger came, and I said their choices actually brought them into danger. And there's a great lesson there for us in our faith that we cannot be pragmatic in our obedience. We, we preach against pragmatism. We preach against easy believism. We preach against a kind of Christianity that is shallow. And we lift up the, the virtues of theology. We lift up the virtues of being Bible-centered. But unless you and I are putting those things into practice, unless you and I are pursuing them in our private lives and together as a congregation, it's just talk. It's just brass symbols smacking. Beloved, Christ in his life was marked by his obedience. And then... That life that is in us, Christ's life that is in us, we who believe, who have partaken of his spirit. Remember, the Bible tells us that he died and he gave us his spirit, the spirit of Christ that dwells within us. Should it then not be designated, marked, observed in you that the defining factor of your life is a life that is lived in obedience to the word of God? Not just in, a, in a, a nodding dog kind of way. Yes, I believe thus. Yes, I believe thus. Yes, I can sign my name to that statement of faith. But one that by your deeds and by your actions, you put God first. Above that relationship with your wife or your husband. Above that relationship, your commitment to your children. Above that relationship to your church. Above that relationship to your work. God first, that you will walk in his ways and keep his requirements, that you will be true, that there will be an integrity about your faith, that you say what you do and you do what you say. There is no hypocrisy there. See, God must be obeyed. That's a shock, isn't it? Did the, 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 the spirit of the Irish Ulsterman, the Northern Irishman, come up inside you there? I will walk that road. God must be obeyed. I will not obey God. I will live my life the way I want to live my life. And I will do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And God can't tell me what to do. Or indeed, does the voice of the enemy whispering here oh god doesn't want you to do anything god jesus died that you might be free be free indeed he doesn't want to bind you up in religion he wants you to be free and do whatever you want whenever you please ha it's a lie it's a lie of the devil it's the same lie that satan whispered in the the ears of eve be free we know because we have studied it in this church, that we are called the slaves of God. We are not those who are redeemed and then just released. We are redeemed and bought into his family, into his service. And beloved, the 
you and I should be demonstrating in our private life, in the life that only you, the angels, and God sees. That secret life of yours. A commitment to obedience. Now, I'll only tell you, it will not be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take effort. How much effort? With loud cries and tears. I was at the gym on, on Friday with my Vigo. And we lifted. Shoop, shoop, you know. And Martin can confess, you go to the gym with Kyle, you'll cry the day after. And uh, I was, oh man, I, I was so sore. I was, I was like a zombie and I was snapping everybody. Else. I was so sore and ridiculous. And, but my Vigo, you would see, he was trying to lift the weights. And of course, he can't lift as heavy as me because I'm a small, heavy set man. He's a tall, skinny young man. And be lifting the weight. And there would be the, the temptation to give up. To give up. You could see it. You get the seven. And there, his arms would be shaking. And he and I'd, come on, son. Come on. And you'd, and you'd have to work it out. You'd have to push hard. And if you want to have some kind of actual physical change in your being, in your physical body, you must put physical effort in. And sadly, for some of us, I mean not Joel, some of us, we only have to look at hamburgers and we put on weight. You know, we, I, I take one donut and it goes straight to my waist. We need to work out, we need to make the effort and as it is in the physical world, so it is in the spiritual world. There must be commitment there. There must be action. We must act. It sounds very, very chauvinistic, man, Greece. We must act like men. And that's from the Bible. We must take hold of our lives and subjugate them to Put them down. We must no longer be steered and moved by the opinions, the trends of this world that would distract. Jesus Christ died not just to, that our sins might be forgiven, not just that your disobedience might be rubbed out, but that disobedient nature in you might be conquered. Not only did he take away your sin, but he gave you his righteousness. A new life. The ability to be obedient. The spirit of Christ that's in you will help you overcome. Well, you said, well, I want to feel strong and mighty and powerful. We all would like to feel that, wouldn't we? We would like to feel like Marvel superheroes type things, you know, full of the force. Like, I feel no weakness. Bullets just bounce off like Superman, you know. Temptations come and no problem, I'm so strong. But that's not the way it works in Christianity. Do you remember the Apostle Paul when he went to preach in Corinth? He said that I was full of fear and shaking. Terror, Phobos. The Bible says when we are weak, then we are strong. It's not strong in the sense of the world where we are invulnerable and unbreakable. 
but rather that we are safe and resting like a baby in the tummy of its mother. We are abiding, secure in the womb. We are secure in the righteousness of Jesus. We are secure in his obedience. And his obedience, his perfected obedience, enables you and I to claim victory. It enables us to be victorious in our lives. You say, well, Kyle, I've never, never been able to maintain it. And I doubt you'll ever will be able to maintain it. But you are able to continue to persevere, to never give up nor give in. You falter, you fall, you fall down, you get back up on your feet. The Bible says that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The Bible says that when I fall, then I shall arise. There is a continually ongoing act of reconciliation and restoration in our spirits. But we must be a willing participant. Don't give up and don't give in. Don't allow your Christian life to become designated, defined by the word disobedient. It might be a secret disobedience. You might come here and look beautiful in your, your Sunday clothes. You might come and smile and everybody thinks everything's going well for you and people are like, how are you doing? Fine. But inwardly, you're dilapidated, disobedient, rebellious, going the opposite way, not doing that which you know you should be doing because God has called you as his child to do it. To be in relationship with him. Jesus Christ has made a way. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that you're not trying to earn merit. Nor trusting in your obedience. It is Christ's obedience that has made a way for you. And now you are sitting on his coattails. You are riding in his success. You are entering into God's presence. Not because of what you have done. But because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You are granted and given free access at any time into the presence of God. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that you don't have to... Beat yourself. Flagellate yourself. You don't have to give alms or say Hail Marys or Ave Marias or whatever else to try and win back God's appreciation and thankfulness. Jesus Christ has done it all. Rejoice in that. Look on to Jesus. This is why his priesthood is so much more superior than any earthly priest. Because with one sacrifice, he fulfilled it all. Not just for himself. Not just for you. Not just for you and for me. But for all of his people through all of time. So great is his sacrifice. So great is his obedience. Let us then continue to the end. Let us not give up nor give in. Let us Repent. Let us recognize the lifestyle of disobedience, even if it's sneaked in quietly. I often think the enemy, 
I don't know what you think about the serpent in the garden, if it was a real snake or if it was just an image. I, in my primitive faith, believe it was an actual creature that the enemy possessed, okay? I don't know why and what the details. I was not there. I do not know. I only know from the, the, the description and the things. I often think that that creature was used because it comes so silently. Have you ever been in the forest and you're sitting there and a snake comes up on you? It's happened to me several times. And where you're, you're sitting there on a tree stump, you're talking to God or reading your Bible and you look down and there's a snake just moving by your foot. You didn't hear the galloping hooves. You didn't hear the, the rustling of the leaves. You hear the flapping of wings. You know, if a swan comes near you, you hear the swan moving. You know, that's how swans sound, yeah. Or a moose. Moose are very quiet. But if they have their antlers and they're coming through the, 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 the brush, you can hear them. But a snake. A snake is quiet. It sneaks up on you. It takes you by surprise. Ambushes you. Very often, the temptation to be disobedient can sneak up on you. Have you ever seen one of those boa worms, the stroop worm? That's what we, in jiu-jitsu, we, that's what we say, that our martial art is, is like a, a, a boa constrictor. A stroop, isn't that what it is in Swedish? A stroop worm? One that ties you up and just squeezes you, and then squeezes you, and then squeezes you like an anaconda. And before you know it, you're without air and you're without energy and you're going blue and you've died. Very often the temptation to be disobedient can sneak up on you and little by little by little it tightens its coils until until the very end when you realize you're in danger and then it's too late. And as soon as the snake feels that you've responded it just tightens completely. It cuts off all your air. And you're stuck. You're probably dead before you know it. Far too often our sin can coil us. Or the temptation to disobedience can coil up before we know it. But the good news is when we see it happening, we cry out for help. And we say, Lord, I recognize these Patterns of disobedience in my life. I recognize, Lord, that I have been led astray by my flesh, the world, the devil. Lord, I recognize that I am in danger once again. Please, Lord, forgive me for my lack of diligence, for the falling back into the patterns of this world for living in a way that is displeasing and disobedient to you. Oh God, forgive me. Thank God that's enough. Thank God we don't have to say, well Lord, oh gosh, forgive me and re-crucify ourselves or whatever. Or crucify ourselves. Don't have to do any of that. We simply recognize and repent of our sin and then turn away. And then fight fight to regain that standing or to renew it, to make new patterns of behavior that sets him first. First in our lives, first every day, first in our desires 
above our husbands, our wives, our children, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, above our career, our ambitions, above whatever we are, whoever we are, God must be first. We bow the knee before his throne. We acknowledge, oh Lord, you are great. And that comes again with tears and light cries. There will be moments in your experience when you will have to fight to keep Christ first. To keep God first. Fight against your flesh. You can't be bothered. Not today. That's when you need to get on your knees and say, Lord, my flesh is strong today. Lord, I'm so weak today. I can't pray. I can't talk to you. Lord, help me. There and then the strength will come. Being in the scriptures and opening them up and beginning to search for Christ. Not just reading them like you would read a newspaper. Not reading them like you would read some fantasy book. Reading them to find Christ, Lord, speak to me this day. Nourish my soul. Feed me with the bread of life through your word. Sanctify me by your word, Lord. And your flesh will be like, oh, not this again. Every time I read this book, it speaks to me. It challenges me. It convicts me. It calls me to change. There will come battles and fights. Struggles. And it's there in that time you must cry out unto God. You see it says here in verse 9. And being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Again not works orientated. We do not believe that we work and then we are rewarded with salvation. But salvation first And then we are enabled to obey him. Let me ask you, are you obedient in your faith? Is your life a life of obedience? Are you doing what you know God desires you to do? Sadly, for many of us, we don't even know what God desires us to do. So limited, so dull has our understanding become that we are infants Our little Felix, I love Felix, you know I love Felix, I see myself in him, he's a bad rat, love him. But you try to say Felix, try and explain to Felix, Felix you can't jump off the chairs like this because something's going to happen, he doesn't get it. If you say that to one of my big boys, they should be able to get it. Because the, the, the difference is in understanding. The danger is for many of us that we behave like Felix. Though we're grown-ups, how wrong would that be if Felix's dad started to talk through the service and jump off the chairs and whatever else? There's a difference there. Why? Because one is a grown-up man who knows better. The other is a, is a wee boy who doesn't know any better. We are not to behave like wee boys who do not know any better. We are to behave like men. Grown-ups who know and are able to distinguish Beloved, let me challenge you again. What is the distinguishing factor of your faith? If I was to ask 
people to examine you with their little list. Ask uh, Susanna, because Susanna's super perfectionist, and she would examine your life in accordance. Would she discover that first and foremost you live a life of obedience? Would there be enough evidence to be able to say, yes, this is one who lives his life in the fear of the Lord, in submission, in reverence to what God has called him to do, and therefore he has put God first above every other relationship in his life, above every other responsibility in his life, that he is fighting for it with tears and loud cries, that he is seeking to perfect it in his life, in their life. It's challenging. Spoke to me this week. And I confess, I'll be the first to confess, I have let this slip. My life has become a very relaxed and lazy lifestyle. Where I say my prayers, but I say them in a kind of just religious factor. I read the Bible, but when it comes to the really fighting to put God first, nah. God understands. If our Lord Jesus Christ had to fight, struggle and strain, had to put effort into his walk, if he had to seek help from God with tears and loud cries, how much more should you and I? I know it goes against the spirit of our age. I know that in this age of easy believism, it's unpalatable to us. It tastes bitter. We want everything to be easy and convenient. We live in the age of smartphones and dumb people. We want the world to be at our fingertips and for us just to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Remember the story of the three pigs. Those two pigs just wanted to play and have a good time. Took no responsibility. Let us be different. Let us be different. Not for the world's sake. Not for even the congregation's sake. But for Christ's sake. That we might bring glory to his name. That the spirit of Christ in us might bring glory to the Father. That we might know him. That we might know him. There's nothing worse than a child being separated from their parents. It's nothing worse than a broken relationship. If that is earthly so, right? How much more would it be? How much more would God feel that pain? If the feelings and experiences that we have are but pale shadows, how much more does God feel the pain of a broken relationship, of an estranged relationship, of a stretch? And if you're not walking in obedience with him, if you're not living your life in godly fear, if you are estranged and separate, rebelling from him, you bring no glory, bring no delight. You are a source of pain to him and of concern. He is doing all that he can to reach out and to bring you in. Do not resist Today, if you hear his voice, do not resist as you did in the time of the desert. Soften your hearts. Come 
And again, like myself, maybe you need to do some soul searching. Maybe you need to do some confessing and some repenting. Maybe you need to do some reconciliation and restoration. Maybe you need to re-establish those lines of contact. Maybe you need to rearrange your life and put your priorities in the right place. Let's not look at one another and say, well, yeah, that person really needs to hear this message. That person really needs this Do you hear this message? There's a message for you who are here today. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, truly we are grateful that you are the living God. Did you speak to our hearts? Did you speak to our lives? Oh Lord, you're not willing for us just to go any way we want. You take care of us and intervene in our circumstances. Lord, we readily recognize that our lives have not been what they should be. That all too often, Lord, instead of being defined by obedience, we are defined by our disobedience. Not necessarily outwardly, but certainly inwardly. Lord, we have not struggled and strained. We have not resisted unto the point of blood. We have not given you the first place in our lives. Lord, we have allowed ourselves to be distracted. We have, Lord, become overcome by the world. We ask, oh Lord, that you would help us. Lord, I don't want to be concerned about this person or that person. For me and for my life and for my heart, Lord, help me. I understand, Lord, my pride, my strain, my fear, my all those things, Lord. All of us, we cry out unto you and help us, O oh God. Lord, we thank you that you died a perfect death and that you provided your perfect righteousness in order to fill our hearts. That you have given us new life and in this new life we are able to come to the Father. That we are able to come with boldness and security. We are able to, Lord, confess our sins and to turn away from them. And we're able to enter into this newness of life. We ask, oh God, that you would help us to remain in these patterns. Lord, to, as the Bible says, that if our eye causes us to sin, to pluck it out, Lord. Or our hand causes us to sin, to cut it off. Lord, those attitudes, Lord, those internal things that are within us that hold us back from you. We pray, Lord God, you'd help us to identify them, that we'd be able to cut them off and cast them from us. Lord, for those wrong rhythms of our life, Lord, those wrong patterns that we hold to, those things, those legitimate reasons, Lord, that we allow to take first place in our lives. Help us to rearrange things, Lord. Help us to put you first. That means getting up early in the morning before the dawn, Lord, be so, Lord, if it means staying up late in the night to pray, Lord, be so. But Father, whatever and wherever, help us to put you first. Oh God, that you might be glorified, that you might be exalted. Lord, that we might enjoy your presence and grow in you. That, Lord, you might protect us from this world. Oh Lord, we pray this for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.